listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development. Covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. And welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'm your host alongside James Fox. It's great to be here with you on the Broadcast Basement Network. Thanks so much to Chris Lanuti for hosting us. If you're new to the Future Sox Podcast, check out our archive. We have interviews, player interviews, and discussions just like this one today. So thanks so much for being a supporter of Future Sox. Shout out to the patrons out there. If you want to become a Patreon a subscriber, go to futuresox.com. You'll be directed right to where you can sign up to become a patron of Future Socks. It really does help us out. You can tell based on the growth that we've had over the last two years, it's because of you, the patrons. So thanks so much for your support. Today, we're talking about White Sox hires in the front office, new people coming aboard and overseeing the operation, assisting Chris Getz. We have information here, and we want to bring in James Fox to obviously offer his opinion and expertise on the hires, as well as discuss the Arizona Fall League. Eight players are going to participate in the league that begins on October 2nd, so more to come. Obviously, as the AAA season rounds up, we're going to have affiliate reviews discussing single A, double A and triple A. Of course, listen to the future Sox roundup as well with myself and Elijah Evans, multiple podcasts here on the feed. So be sure to subscribe. Let's begin the conversation because Chris gets James has brought in three new people to our knowledge. At this point, it's been reported that Brian Bannister, Gene Watson, and Josh Barfield are now joining the organization. Bannister assigned senior advisor to pitching Gene Watson, director of player personnel, and Josh Barfield is the assistant general manager. So, your takeaway, I know there's a lot of ties with Chris Getz and formerly of Kansas City. We're kind of reacting to the White Sox turning into the Royals in some sense, but I don't want that to deter the listener or the White Sox fan because there's a lot of qualifications here and it's leaving us optimistic, but I want more information. So, James, what do you think of the hires? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I'm glad they went outside. The Josh Barfield, um, is interesting. Brian Bannister is a great hire. I, you know, I think the role we can, we can discuss cause the title's a little bit weird. Um, and then Gene Watson um, has a long history, just like in player personnel. We'll get into him too. I guess the one negative to me, and we kind of talked about it, you know, pre-show and off the air a few times, like it's just, it's too much Pedro Grafol for me. Like, <laughs> it's just like this guy, the way this guy, like, you know, and he kind of talked about it in the press release, with Josh Barfield, right? We, we kind of um, went over just like what he said about him. And I just like, think it's funny because I think it's nonsense because he's, you know, baseball Jim Boylan basically. But when he says smart, smart guy, he's been doing player development over there, which you know what I think about player development. That job really prepares you for a lot of things. Bright, bright, bright guy, which tells me, that he doesn't know who Josh Barfield is, Mike. That's that's basically <laughs> what I think about that part. But yeah. 
40-year-old Josh Barfield, um, you know, his dad, Jesse Barfield, was a stud, like, out of Joliet, Illinois. There are some ties to Barfield, which, you know, I think you could look at as a negative, but everybody knows everybody, you know. So he came up in Arizona as, you know, under, like, the tutelage of Dave Stewart, who is super tight with Tony LaRusa. So when those guys ran the Diamondbacks, I think Josh Barfield was there. So... But yeah, well-respected assistant GM. I wasn't sure if he was going to get the farm director title. It seems like he won't because Chris Getz was assistant GM and director of player development. Um, I kind of feel like it would have been mentioned by now if Barfield was doing that job. So I feel like he's just going to be a straight like assistant GM, like along with Jeremy Haber. We don't know his future, obviously. but so So both of those guys there, and then obviously we could – hear about the director of player development if they make another hire there. I don't know. You're the you're the pitching guy. I feel like do you think Bannister's the most interesting of these three? I know he's he's kind of been in San Francisco in like a in a weird role, but he really, you know, there's a lot of stories out there about the impact that he had in Boston when Dave Dombrowski hired him originally. So I guess like getting him I think is super interesting. I just think it's like a weird title kind of. Yeah, we could get into all of it, of course. And I'm not a part of Major League Baseball's conversation, right? I'm not one to know people within the industry where they can give me information about Brian Bannister. But from what I've read, this is a great hire. And to me, you have an overarching voice that is looking down on the organization over all of the pitchers within the org. So I'm looking for communication. And this goes for all the hires. And I think that's my point is a healthy workspace in the front office is a good thing with guys sort of going in the same direction when it comes to decision-making and backing those who are making decisions or not usurping another. I think that's right. A step in the right direction without knowing much about any of these guys in terms of their work day to day within the front office, right? Just in person, how they are as people. Let's talk about Josh Barfield still a little bit because, you know, taking over the assistant general manager's job, working alongside Chris Getz, former scout for the Diamondbacks, and then gets hired as director of player development in 19. So he has experience there. Younger, sort of more, I think, uh, in tune with a modern game. I think that's a positive. You're working with Chris Getz, who also is, in my opinion, trying to work towards getting the White Sox to a modern era of baseball on the field and working with Brian Bannister. This kind of connects as well. Bannister was lauded for the way that he implemented and uh, understood advanced analytics earlier than most. And this is like early 2010s and identifying pitchers through analytics, what is success and what can be extrapolated from those who are failing. Right. So that's kind of my expectations. When I think of Brian Bannister as senior advisor to pitching, how is he going to look at a singular pitcher find their strengths and get them to the next level or help them or identify things that, you know, maybe other organizations would see like you're done. You're out of my, you're off my team. You're not a major league ball player. And Bannister says, wait a second, let's figure this out and take advantage of the talent because I want player development coming out of the White Sox organization. Over the last four years, we've been lauding the draft classes, you know, and Mike Shirley, we bring him up all the time because he's part of this thing. You talk about building an organization Let's see them develop into major league ballplayers. And once they get to the big leagues, let's see them have success. Let's not feel like 
we're watching players who are overwhelmed when they get to the big leagues. So, you know, these are some of my hopes. And Gene Watson as well, just to finish the list here, director of player personnel, that's somebody who's going to communicate with the players, have direct dialogue with players if they're unhappy or if they're struggling or if there's a message that the organization wants to be had or understood across all levels. I want Gene Watson to be able to connect to these guys. And if the organization is working under the blanket of one philosophy, I just feel like it would help this team and the big league team and the minor league team so much if they could all just be pulling from the same string, just continue to move in a positive direction mentally. And with it, look, this is where all the criticism comes from. Chris gets overseeing minor league operations gets criticized for the way these players have lacked development. So let's see how it changes with some of these new names. Like I said, Barfield sort of uh, on the same level as Chris gets in terms of age and experience in these types of roles, a fresher mind, maybe a fresher understanding of what it means to be a good ball team. Fine. Let me see it in action. Gene Watson has a ton of experience, right? Dating back uh, years, multiple years working in front offices. Now that's a good thing, right? In terms of, you know, checking off positives. What we know is that he has experience. How is he as a person? Don't know. But as a director of player personnel, you better be able to connect with these guys. And Bannister, somebody who has experience identifying success in certain areas of pitching that separates him, obviously, as a, as a candidate who is appreciated in the world of baseball, that hopefully can get the White Sox pitching staff on the right track. So just a lot there, James. And I you know, just spewing out my thoughts on the hires. I think it all does come back to overall a sense of understanding within the room, right? A conversation that's not one way. Are you compensating? Are are you accommodating? Are you listening? So that's what I hope to see based on decision-making. And of course, we're curious about who else is going to join the organization, but it will be telling based on the decisions on paper made on the roster and what Chris gets tells us the only way we can truly evaluate these hires is over time. But so far, all I want to know is are these guys pulling on the same string and infusing a message to the organization and player development and the staff that we have a goal in mind. This is how we're going to get there and let's implement this strategy, whatever it may be. And it's not, it's not in terms of every player has to follow the strategy. Just understand this is how we're going about player development. Yeah. You know, I just, I kind of like the top down approach and I, I don't think we know exactly what Bannister is going to do. I'm pretty confident that he's not just the replacement for Everett Tiford. Cause that doesn't make any sense. Like Everett Tiford did some of the analytics stuff and look, he was from Kansas city too, which is kind of funny, but um, before, like now he's off to Auburn as their pitching coach, but he was the minor league pitching coordinator. So like, he didn't have anything to do with the big league club. He wasn't with Ethan Katz. So like Katz and Bannister know each other from San Francisco, I believe. Um, but I guess like my interpretation of this is like Bannister is basically like in charge of pitching for the org. And then, you know, like, uh, Katz will be the major league pitching coach, like under him, I guess, technically, so, you know, like, I, I do think that's interesting having Brian Bannister, just because I think he's a forward thinker. He's well-versed in, in analytics, obviously, like you said, but I think he's able to communicate 
that stuff to the players, which is something that we've talked about. That's probably the most important part. And I've also heard him talk about things such as like always trying to be like ahead of the game and never getting complacent. And for years and years, the White Sox have had to catch up to the rest of the industry. Right. And you could make the joke that they're hiring Brian Bannister like five to seven years too late. But I think he's the type of guy that will come in and find like that next thing potentially instead of relying on like past practice essentially. And then Gene Watson also gets like a new title for this organization, director of player personnel. The White Sox did not have one. Mike Shirley is the director of amateur scouting, the pro scouting. I was always under the assumption that Dan Fabian like runs pro scouting and Nick Hostetler is like a special assistant to to Han he was. So he's there. And then there's like a whole host of big league scouts. Um, many of those guys were retired now, or they were, you know, perceived to be lackeys of, of Ken Williams potentially. And so like, I think you could see like a big change to that department, especially if it's like Gene Watson in charge of it and hiring all of his, his own people. So yeah, so I guess those are the things that I found interesting about those three hires. I wouldn't rule out more. I've heard that there's a potential for, you know, and everybody can close their ears here, like more, more Kansas City people, it seems. I don't know what that means um, and who it would be. I know there's Dayton Moore rumors, like he's in Texas. I don't, I, don't, I don't know, you know, if he's coming or what that would look like. But, you know, I think the next big area, like international scouting, we've talked about it a ton. Marco Patti has been lauded for his big hits, but there's some high-profile misses and rough allocation of bonus pool space, in my opinion. So if they went a different direction with the international scouting, I would be on board, but I'd also like to know if, like, you know, maybe Marco Patti is still heading up that department, but maybe the strategy changes a little, right? Like, I don't know if Yolbert Sanchez and Yoelki Cespedes and Oscar Colas, like, I don't know for sure that that's the way that Marco Patti would choose to spend his money. Or if that's just a, you know, Kenny Williams wants these guys because they're quick to the majors or well, I don't, I don't know the logistics of any of that, but I do think that area is an interesting one to watch going forward to see if they replace anybody there or add more to the organization. Yeah, it's well said. And I was thinking about that too. It's just how the international side of the operation is going to get adjusted, if at all. And with Gene Watson coming to town, you know, former Royals assistant general manager and VP of Major League Scouting, there's some qualifications there. And I wonder how that's going to impact the way they identify players and who Gene Watson, you know, gets buddy buddy with. And if he has people that he's close to that he wants around him as well in the front office, I want to know if they're going to add to their scouting department, James, it seems like the White Sox scouting department has stayed stagnant for years and they've had the same names doing the same jobs, covering the same regions for a long time. I don't know if you have any info to speak on that, but it seems like the White Sox scouting department themselves too uh, could use a little bit of a boost. Well, so my guess is that they they're going to, Definitely. So I guess I would say on both sides, right? So starting in pro scouting, my guess is they will because Watson likely wants more staff, but also like, I'm not going to mention anybody by name, but mm -hmm. like, I just kind of alluded to it. Like the, the perception is that there are multiple people in the White Sox, like ether that are, you know, that were hired by Ken Williams and that are very loyal to Ken Williams and some of those people might have been able to like skirt some responsibility because Ken Williams 
is the person that he is. Right. So, so look, I think, I don't think there's like an official announcement, like these four scouts are fired or something like that, but if they were no longer like on the website and then all of a sudden we hear about new hires, something like that wouldn't surprise me at all. Now, the amateur side, I'm pretty sure Mike Shirley will stay in his current role. He did draft Chris Getz, after all, as his area scout. Um, but I have heard that there's changes coming under under um, Shirley, and I feel like that might have happened anyway. Like Garrett Guest is his assistant GM or his assistant scouting director, and then there were people in different areas, but they lost multiple scouts. Um, Justin Wexler was the area scout um, for like Michigan, Indiana, this area, like along with JJ Lally and Justin Wexler got the pitching coach job at his alma mater at Bell state and took it. So like that, you know, that's a role that you have to fill anyway. So my guess is like some cross checkers could change. But the other thing with that, like listening to Jerry Reinsdorf speak, one of the things he said that stood out to me was talking about plucking scouts from organizations that like fired them basically. And I know it's easy to say like, oh, like, why would you want like these fired scouts? But like, there's a lot of orgs that, that just use models. And we talk about this around the draft all the time. And, you know, the twins are one of these teams and, you know, there, there's a lot of other model teams Seattle was, but they've drafted more high schoolers of late. So, so teams like discard their veteran scouts. I could see the White Sox hiring some of those people just because like Jerry Reinsdorf brought it up in his press conference. So my guess is that, that, you know, Chris Getz probably mentioned something like that when he was interviewing or given the job or whatever we want to say. And then Jerry like regurgitated it during his like part of the press conferences is just my guess there. So yeah, like I, I think there's, there's the potential for, for lots of new hires because it was like the smallest front office in baseball before. Right. And, and now it's, it's what it's four, four guys in and two guys out essentially. Cause all we know about is Kenny and Rick are gone. Getz is taking the place of both of those guys. But now there's a senior advisor to pitching, a director of player personnel, and another assistant GM. So, yeah, I, I would assume, you know, the month of October is a lot of this type stuff, getting their staff in order, because I think the general manager's meetings are like the first week in November. And then, you know, the offseason basically kicks off at that point. That's very well described. James Fox here alongside us in the Future Sox podcast. Be sure to follow him at JamesFox917. I'm at Rankin906. We're on Twitter at Future Sox. And, of course, shout out to the Broadcast Basement. Follow them as well. And Sox in the Basement podcast hosted by Chris Lanuti. Uh, they are our friends and our hosts on the new network that uh, we are so pleased to be a part of. Brian Bannister, Senior Advisor to Pitching, Gene Watson, Director of Player Personnel, Josh Barfield, Assistant General Manager of your Chicago White Sox. A couple of other names that I think just fans, uh, we talk about it enough, should remember and just to keep it in the back of their minds, Andy Barquette, Matt Zaleski, and Marco Patti. So those are some names that I wanted to uh, just plant in your brain as well because I want to monitor, of course, Mike Shirley, but I wanted to monitor uh, those names as well to see what happens moving forward. All right. So any final thoughts, James? Because I want to talk about the Arizona Fall League before we get out of here. No, I think I think that's good. I think we covered it. And, you know, all the other people that do similarly to us, like tried to cover this too. And we're, you know, we're we're gonna see. We're gonna see how many, you know, how many changes there are. I don't know. We we talked about Ken Williams Jr., I think, on our pod too, but a lot of other people have. And it's just I just I think there's I think there's gonna be some change. And this is kind of what people wanted, right? They said, like, oh, if Chris Getz is here, I hope he brings in people from the outside. And he has, and you know, the Royals 
is the outside technically. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we're uh, going to get some more people and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes from there. Essentially. Arizona fall league is beginning October 2nd. Now the Arizona fall league is uh, just a collection of prospects. They're advanced in age. They're advanced in skill set, And also it's an opportunity for maybe fringe guys to prove that they can hang with upper levels of competition around major league baseball. And the White Sox decided to send eight of their players to participate in the league this year. It starts October 2nd. Here's the list. Right-handed pitcher, Addison coffee, right-handed pitcher, Yossi Marcuzin, left-handed pitcher, Jake eater, left-handed pitcher, Frazier Ellard, right-handed pitcher, Jordan leisure, shortstop Colson Montgomery, third baseman, Brian Ramos and outfielder, Jacob Burke. So a fun little list here, Jacob Burke uh, of note, first full professional season and he's getting tasked to play in Arizona. And I know we're celebrating Colson Montgomery. He is the top prospect in uh, the Arizona fall league this year. And it does make sense. I think this is the right time for Montgomery because likely if, if all goes to plan, Montgomery will be a part of the Chicago white Sox in 2024 at mm -hmm. some point. And I'm talking, this guy is already as advanced as you could imagine. Uh, still room to grow defensively with the arm, but it all checks out. He can hang at shortstop, and he is an advanced hitter. He has proven that at every level. Got a late start to the year. It's an opportunity for him to make up on lost time a little bit and continue on a strong season as well as see some advanced competition. So, James, I, I think we can start there. Let's react a little bit to Colson Montgomery being the highlight as well as some of these other names. but. Just the, the role that the Arizona Fall League itself plays on these prospects specifically. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's just like a prospect league. Like, it, it's loaded. So having Colson Montgomery, like, he's he's the highest ranked prospect there. So no pressure, kid, right? Like, he, he can go there and look, if he goes there and does what he's done in the minors, then I feel like I, I think it's appropriate to just believe that we're going to see him like early 2024 because like everybody that's there, they're pretty much close to the big leagues, I would say. So it's very exciting that they're sending their top guy. I think lately the White Sox haven't really sent their top guys to the Arizona fall league. It's always just kind of been trying to make rule five decisions and some other stuff. So yeah, they're playing for the, uh, the Glendale desert dogs. They play, at Camelback Ranch, actually, and he should he should play shortstop most days, I would think. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's interesting, and I think the other like he he was hurt, so that's one thing that some clubs do they they send their like top injured prospects to the Arizona Fall League to just like make up for lost time essentially. But you know we'll see a lot there. Hopefully he he displays the same plate patience that he's displayed everywhere else. On our last show, we kind of talked about it like. The batting average dropped a little bit with Birmingham, but the on-base percentage was still around 400. So if he can do similar and keep doing that, I mean, this guy's one of the top prospects in all of baseball for a reason. And I guess somebody in a similar place, Brian Ramos, is on the 40-man roster. So look, like maybe he's closer to the majors. Obviously, Moncada's at third. That's where Ramos plays. But he missed some time this year, too. So they'll both be there along with Jacob Burke, like you talked about. I think that's um, a pretty substantial step up from playing at Winston-Salem. So we'll see how Burke looks. If he struggles offensively, you know, I really don't think anybody should worry about that. Um, but, it, but it could happen because it is, 
it's a it's a pretty big step up. And the one thing about the Arizona Fall League is before we get into some of these pitchers, it's generally like a hitters league. So pitchers that go there either don't pitch much or aren't there for long necessarily just because they get they get bombed in Arizona because it's in October and it's it's super hot there. So, you know, that's just kind of uh how that league has been. Colson Montgomery, 21 years old. Brian Ramos, 21 years old. Jacob Burke, 22 years old. And Burke, again, first full professional season, stayed in single A, got to advance day Winston-Salem, finished with a 771 OPS, but is getting challenged because the White Sox believe in the profile. And you, you look at the makeup, and we're going to have more. Look, go back and read James Fox interview with Jacob Burke. You can find it on our site, futuresox.com and uh, search Jacob Burke because this was uh, very insightful, in my opinion. Right before the start of the season, Burke kind of gave James his thoughts about going into the season and what you know he sees himself in the future. Spoiler alert, he thinks he's a big league player. Uh, and he radiates confidence. So loved watching him play this year. He looked like a free safety out in center field with just his size and the way that he was able to hold his own against uh, the toughest competition of pitching that he faced in his career this year uh, in a full season is uh, kudos and look the White Sox are being aggressive that means maybe we get to see him pushed further next season Uh, position player wise that'll do it Jacob Burke Brian Ramos and Colson Montgomery there's five pitchers one of them Jordan Leisure a guy that uh, I had maybe hoped to see in the big leagues in September at some point look 40-man decisions are are interesting obviously you know, there's a lot of details that go into the decision-making process there, but he struggled once he got to the organization, pitched in double A, and then as soon as he was acquired by the White Sox, was sent to triple A Charlotte immediately and just didn't do well. So this is a chance for him to reset, build on, you know, a, a tough end of the season, but get some confidence, reset, going to next year, and maybe we'll see him in the opening day bullpen, not out of the question, but this is a, a high leverage relief arm. Um, on, on top of some of these other guys, Frazier Ellard, 25 years old, this is his chance as a 6'4", double-A lefty to say, I'm here for a reason. Jake Eater, of course, we talked about uh, you know the significance of the front office making these changes in the future. Uh, Jake Eater is a part of that future. He sported, what, a 1-7 ERA in his first full season at double-A, and that was his first full professional season. It was a very aggressive assignment in Miami, then fractured his foot uh, in 2023. It was a just after he had Tommy John surgery, he was done rehabbing and then fractured his foot. So it was just a longer rehab for him. And he didn't really get a season off uh, on the right foot. Pardon. I couldn't help it. Right. So it was just a long season for Jake eater. And it's a reset for him, experiencing a new organization after a very tough year plus. Um, and Yossi Marcuzine, I know James has uh, opinions on cuisine, a late international signing pitched in high a, uh, right away, he's 25 years old, and the White Sox believe that because of his age and his experience that he can handle this challenge. And Addison Coffey, I love the story of Addison Coffey. In 2020, was the team's third-round pick, but signed at $50,000 out of uh, Wabash Valley Community College. It, look, a $50,000 third-round draft pick signing. Uh, the slot value, again, 2020, a five-round draft. The slot value of that pick at 83 was $733,100. Coffee signed for $50,000. That in large part because Garrett Crochet signed uh, the first round draft pick, right? And Jared Kelly, the second round draft pick, signed for the majority of, of their allotted slot throughout the um, five round draft class that year. 
So Addison Coffey is surviving. And this is a guy who played the field and hit and also pitched in college. But now he's strictly a reliever. He's got a career high in innings. I think just I love following guys like this. It's a fun story to manage. So those are your five pitchers. James, feel free to pick it up wherever you want. Yeah, so I think like a couple of 25-year-old pitchers that we could see pretty quickly. Jordan Leisure kind of struggled, like you said, but you know he was striking out like 15 guys per nine in Charlotte. I think that's somebody that the White Sox wouldn't mind seeing early next season. And then Yossi Marcosin is is interesting. I mean, he was a 25-year-old Cuban. We were kind of just talking about like not using resources on this, but because of when he was signed, he didn't even count against the international bonus pools because he was already old enough. So, um, you know, he threw five innings in the complex and he threw 41 more um, with high A in Winston-Salem where he, he struck out, you know, almost nine guys per nine, basically. He put up a four ERA, 4.00, when he made a couple of appearances in Birmingham where he threw nine innings pitched. So generally speaking like players that go to the Arizona fall league need to be in the need to be in double a or higher generally. So my guess is he went there to, you know, get a couple of starts under his belt um, and then go there and he doesn't strike out a lot of guys. He doesn't have a history of a lot of walks. Um, so he doesn't miss too many bats, but it does seem like, you know, they, they think at least that, you know, he, he probably goes to, the high minors next year, and then you could see him pretty early um, next year as well. The, the Jake Eater is the most interesting, but I mean, he was so bad with the White Sox after they made the Jake Berger trade. And look, they got him into their lab in Arizona and they want to look at his mechanics and some other stuff. Like, you know, Jake Eater could be really, really good, um, but he was just disappointing. Um, I, I know that some have kind of said that you know, he looked basically all the way back in his final two starts for the Marlins before the White Sox got him. But then for whatever reason, he, he struggled a lot with Birmingham, but he is in double a and you could flip it quickly. So if he has a really strong Arizona fall league where he looks healthy and he looks like his old self, you know, that that's a guy that could rate that could rise up prospect rankings quickly, but it's also a guy that could be pitching in the major soon. Cause he's another, he's another 24 year old, um, there. So, and then with Frazier Ellard and Addison Coffee, the White Sox always kind of send guys like this. They sign cl- guys that are close to Rule 5 eligible to see if there's like somebody they want to keep or give somebody one final shot or whatever. But yeah, it is it is kind of interesting that Addison Coffee is like still able to to hold on here a little bit. Yeah, I like what you said about uh Cuisine just bringing up his his peripherals. The numbers aren't exactly what you're looking for but there's an uptick in swings and misses Uh, he's missing more bats than he did traditionally across his career previously so that's a positive development and you're looking for some if you're talking about investing in a 25 year old who you think could pitch you know relatively quickly uh at the next level so just a rundown of those names i'm with you on jake eater it's still gonna i I still understand why the White Sox decided to move Berger for Eater. It does hurt a lot watching Berger dominate in Miami, but I'm also happy for the guy because he's playing Major League Baseball for a playoff team, and he's out of this cesspool in Chicago. So good for him and good for the family. And look, the White Sox are on to a new um, chapter because this is what we have. We have the list of names that are trickling in, new hires, and some of these prospects. Look, I want you to pay attention to what we're doing over the next couple of weeks because at FutureSox.com, 
like I said earlier, we're putting out affiliate reviews, positive steps, especially in the 2022 draft class took place this year. And it was a lot of fun to follow. So you'll be able to read those at futuresocks.com next week. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, because we drop episodes regularly on Tuesday, we also do the future socks roundup. Like I said, we drop those on Fridays now on the broadcast basement, as well as some fun interviews that we do with players, specifically Elijah Evans, my roundup partner gets together with White Sox prospects. And we plan to release those whenever he has them on Mondays. So if you're not subscribed to the Future Sox podcast, I implore you to do so because we have White Sox content for you all week, all the time at futuresox.com. If you want to support us, we really do appreciate it on Patreon. Uh, James, this was a lot of fun to get back at it. I think it's always kind of bittersweet to watch the end of a baseball season, but at this point it's a relief. And uh, there's going to be some decisions that need to be made for the White Sox front office moving forward because a couple of core players expiring deals, specifically Tim Anderson club option, curious how they're going to handle that. And then also what they want to do in terms of maybe getting to what Jerry Reinsdorf's point was, and that's competing in 2024. I personally don't see it, but Hey, it's Chris Getz's task and we'll see if he's up to it. Yes, we will. And I think we'll see early just by some of the decisions he makes. Like you, you kind of talked about some of those veterans, um, Tim Anderson, I think it's what it's a $14 million club option. Some I've talked to, you think it's a no brainer to pick it up. Others, you know, are very skeptical of what Tim Anderson is at this point, essentially. So, you know, if they were to decline that, I, I wouldn't be terribly surprised. Um, if I had to bet on it, I'd say that they, they, they pick it up and try to trade him. That wouldn't be that surprising. I just don't know what you're going to get at this point with how much he struggled. And then another interesting one is, is Liam Hendricks. I mean, he's, he's owed $15 million. If you pick up the buyout, he's owed $15 million if you decline it, but if you decline it, you can pay it 1.5 million over the next 10 years, the way the White Sox do business. My guess is they consider that like a gain of 13.5 million that they'd get to spend that they otherwise wouldn't. Um, so my guess is, you know, we see something with Hendricks where he could return on like a two year deal. If, if he were to come back, like after getting the buyout and then Mike Clevenger, we obviously haven't talked a ton about, um, he's been pretty good. He has a club or he doesn't have a, he has a mutual option. Right. Um, which my guess is he, he declines the mutual option in my opinion, just because so the white Sox would owe him $12 million for next year, I believe or it's a $4 million buyout. So my guess is he takes the buyout, gets the 4 million um, and then goes out on the market and tries to top like what I was just talking about. Cause he'd really only have to make $8 million in the marketplace. And he, he's been pretty good. So my, my guess is he could do that. So, and then just, you know, one last thing before, you know, we go Nick Nestrini is a name that we've, we've talked about. I know you and Elijah, have kind of talked about him a bunch too. He was the the prize along with Jordan Leisure in the Lance Lynn trade. So, you know, he was named uh, International League Pitcher of the Week for this last week for Charlotte. Um, you know, it says he, he uh, threw five scoreless innings on September 24th. So his, his ERA in Charlotte over the course of 20 innings is like 412, which, look, we've talked a lot about that place. Like, I think that's pretty good for that place you know it's 10 and a half k's per nine too many walks but i feel like you know if, if we were to see nick nestrini first out of all these guys 
I wouldn't be like terribly shocked by that. And, you know, my, my guess is he's in big league spring training with an invite, like pitching there. So he should have some sort of opportunity. I would imagine. I'm glad you brought up Nestrini. Yeah, he is, in my opinion, among those arms who are close to major league ready. He is the closest of the group that can make an impact in 2024. And the White Sox are going to have to fill that rotation somehow. He talks about Clevenger. Boy, did he pitch this year quite well for the White Sox uh, overall. But it's Chris Getz's show, and we talked about it on this show. I'm sure we'll talk draft lottery again, like leading Mm -hmm. up to December when they finally do it. But I just like chuckled when I brought up the Royals because like think about how miserable this White Sox season is and they still only have the fourth worst record in the league. Like my goodness, like they're going to lose a hundred and there's three teams worse than them right now, which, which is absolutely crazy to me. I don't know if I can get into another offseason discussion about greedy ownership. I just, I don't know if I can take it. Just the way that they're not spending and manipulating markets. It just, I don't know, man. It, and wasn't there something related to the Orioles too? They're considered a, a small oh, market team, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. They're the new, the Baltimore Orioles are the new Cardinals, apparently. So, yeah, like when you, when you do the draft, there's generally 16 large market teams and 14 small market teams. Um, there's like a lottery every year and then they go by record. So six of those teams pick have extra picks after the first round. And then eight of them have extra picks after the second round. And then they flip. Um, and that's usually the 14 like revenue payees, I guess, um, the, the one, the small market clubs. So the gist of it is Baltimore is considered a small market club for some reason right now, but they're also going to get, what'll very likely be the like the 31st pick in the draft when Gunnar Henderson wins rookie of the year, they'll get a pick for him. So in theory, like they they'll have their regular pick, which is going to be super late for the first time in a while, but mm-hmm. then they'll also have two basically compensatory picks before pick like 40 basically. So yeah, that's helpful for them. I don't know how they got a small market tag, but it, it, it benefits the Orioles for sure. And maybe the White Sox can win the draft lottery. Let's, uh, Let's hold on to hope there and not hopefully they don't fall below four because that would really suck. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. The the other way, sorry, the other way to look at it is like you might want them to fall below four because if they pick in the top six this year, they can't pick in the top six next year and it's a better draft and they're probably going to be horrible. Yeah. Well, there it is. Well, there it is. Hey, what else can we look forward to as White Sox fans? The Bears? I don't know, man. I I, I don't don't think so. For James Fox. My name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. I'm ending the show for real this time. Thanks so much for your support on Patreon, as well as uh, subscribing to the podcast. If you want to rate us, that'd be great. Click five stars, do your thing. It helps us get out to more people. And if you want to email us, we're at uh, futuresocks at gmail.com. That's futuresocks at gmail.com. We'll read your email, answer your questions, talk about whatever you want to talk about. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next time.